Alright, what is your favorite movie? Anybody have a favorite movie? Raise your hand, give me a favorite movie. Somebody give me a favorite movie in the back. Pride and Prejudice, that's a classic. I can't say I've ever seen it, but I know it's a classic. Anyone else got a favorite movie? Over here. I actually knew that. I could have guessed it for you. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, I knew that one. Uh, how about from this wing here? We haven't had any of this wing here. Hold on, we'll come back to you. I need someone in this wing. Anybody? My eyes? Nate, favorite movie. Come on, man. <laughs> That's a good one. He's never seen a movie before. All right, Kevin, give me a joke. Give me a, give me a movie. Happy Gilmore. All right. When I start thinking about favorite movies, I think about Nicolas Cage. Anything with Nicolas Cage in it is going to be a good movie. Anyone else feeling that? Okay, maybe not, but... One of my absolute favorite movies, and my family will attest to this, is National Treasure. National Treasure, such a good movie. Nicolas Cage, the lead character, and he believes that there's a secret treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. And that secret treasure map will lead him to a treasure that's been kept secret for a couple hundred years, since the 1700s. Well, of course... You know, when he starts telling people about that, everybody thinks, you're crazy. You are crazy. But sure enough, what does he do? He steals the Declaration of Independence. He finds a treasure map. He follows the clues. And he finds a buried treasure that had been lost for all those times. I loved it. Now, in that movie, though, Nicolas Cage, people thought he was crazy. You know, Nicolas Cage actually joins a lot of people uh, that the world thought was crazy. Like, think about Galileo Galilei. Galileo was a guy who believed, man, no, I don't think the sun revolves around the earth. I think the earth revolves around the sun. And guess what people said? You're crazy. You're crazy for believing that. I mean, Nicholas Cage and Galileo, they are like the priests from the uh, Moscow plague in the 1770s. This priest, literally, this is what he said. The, the plague is spreading. The priest tells, tells the people, stop kissing the statue of Mary because you're spreading the disease. And guess what? People said, you're crazy. They actually had that priest uh, burned at the stake for blasphemy because he was telling them not to kiss the statue. People like Dr. William Kolf. Dr. William Kolf was a guy who, who suggested that we could actually take people's blood out of their body and clean it and put it back in their body. And they were like, you're crazy. We call that dialysis nowadays, right? That's essentially what dialysis is. See, all these people, Nicholas Cage and, and Galileo and, and Dr. I have to look at his name again, Dr. Kolf, they believed they were crazy because they were standing for truth. They were willing to live and believe differently than everybody else. And they were willing to suffer humiliation, hardship, sacrifice, because they stood for the truth. You know, it makes me think a little bit, uh, how many of us have ever been called crazy because of our faith? Now, my salvation experience uh, starts with my, my dad died when I was nine. He had a heart attack in our living room. And uh, uh, so I grew up and had that pain of not having a dad around. Uh, but the church I grew up in, the Mormon church, they did some things really well in my life. They had some mentors that, that mentored me and that shaped my teenage years that had a big impact on my life. 
Uh, there was another gal in the Mormon church, and, and she uh, made a promise to my mom. Hey, you know, we, we love Kevin. We love your family. We're going to pay for Kevin's child college education. And all those things were good and great until my junior year when I heard the gospel message. When I heard that Jesus died on the cross for me and rose from the grave, and that if I put my faith in him, I can know for sure where I stand with God. And I'm like, whoa, I've never heard this before. Because as a Mormon, you don't have the assurance. You hope you've been good enough. You hope you followed all the rules. But you don't know how good you've been. And so I remember that end of my junior year, I gave my life to Jesus. Now, I will say I was a little bit of a slow learner, so it took me a couple of months to realize, wait a second, these two things are not the same. And I remember coming to a point where I had to make a decision. Am I going to stand for the truth I read about in the Bible? Am I going to live for it? And I remember making that decision. And I left the Mormon church. And it was really sad because suddenly, those mentors didn't want to have anything to do with me anymore. Suddenly, that lady that promised a college education, uh, that promise was gone. Those people said, Kevin, you're crazy. Kevin, how can you turn your back on, on all these things? Because I found the truth. And I was willing to stand up for the truth. I was willing to live different than the crowd and face whatever came with it. Now, we have been in the book of Acts for uh, a long time now, and we've got three weeks left. I am so looking forward to uh, the next series uh, dealing with our, our language. But we've been looking at the book of Acts and how the, the church became a movement, how the Holy Spirit empowered the church, and they began to change everything around them. And that's been our prayer here at Restoration Church. God, would you help us to become a movement? Now, we can see, God, you, Holy, your Horace, Holy, you. <laughs> And that, God, we could see your Holy Spirit being poured out in our city. Lives change, neighborhoods change, schools change. Man, that's the prayer we have. Today, Jake read for us a speech that Paul gave before King Agrippa and Governor Festus. At the end of the speech, Festus said this. He said, Paul, you're out of your mind. He said, Paul, you are crazy. Paul, you're like Nicolas Cage and Galileo and the doctor that invented dialysis. You're crazy because you're living different than what normal is. You're standing up for a truth. I mean, Paul is standing up and saying, I believe Jesus rose from the grave. And Paul said, because of that, that's why I'm arrested. That's why I'm suffering. And Festus' response is, you're crazy. Why would you suffer for that? Because he found the truth. And that's pretty awesome. So Acts chapter 26, a little bit of context. We've been following the Apostle Paul as he's been making his way to Jerusalem to, to share the gospel with the people in Jerusalem. And we know that when he arrived there, it didn't go so well. Uh, there was a riot that started in the temple. A mob starts beating on Paul. Paul gets arrested on these false charges. He's gone through these, these uh, various trials. Uh, false trials, false charges, all these things that have gone on. Uh, and, until it gets to the point that the Romans are like, hey, we need to do something to protect Paul because the people are trying to kill him. So they take him to Caesarea, and there he meets Governor Felix. And Gover Governor Felix wasn't a good man. Governor Felix knows that Paul's done nothing wrong but doing himself a favor for the Jews. He leaves Paul in prison for two years. Meantime, a new governor comes in, and Paul 
makes his case to the governor, and the governor's like, mm, I don't know. So Paul finally says, I make my appeal to Caesar. And now, in the meantime, while, while Paul made this appeal, uh, we have this new king, King Agrippa, he shows up. King Agrippa. Now, he comes from a famous uh, family in the Bible that was totally opposed to the work of God, totally opposed to Jesus. I'm not going to tell you about him, but you can read about his family in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew 14, Acts chapter 12. His family is a pretty bad family. And not only that, Agrippa shows up with Bernice, who um, is his sister and his wife. Put those two things together. I'm not going to go any, any details, but it's weird, right? It's weird. But when Agrippa shows up, because of his experience of growing up in Jerusalem, the Romans believed he was an expert on all things Jewish. And so here's, here's Governor Festus. He's like, I don't know what to do with, with Paul. He appealed to go to, to, to go to Caesar, and I don't know what to tell Caesar. So when Agrippa shows up, Festus is like, hey, Agrippa, you want to come and talk to Paul? Come and talk to him and help me figure out what I'm supposed to say. Help me figure out what I, uh, what I write to Caesar as to why uh, Paul is, is appealed to him and why Paul's been in prison for all this time. And that's Acts chapter 26. Paul is giving his, his presentation in front of Festus and Agrippa and Bernice. And he's going to claim, he's going to say, the reason I'm on trial the reason I'm in trial is because of my hope in Jesus. And as he shares his testimony, as he defends himself, we're going to see that it's going to be a challenge for us, for those of us who call ourselves Christians. As to whether, as we claim to be people of hope, as we claim to be people that follow Jesus, do we see some of the same evidences in our life that the Apostle Paul is going to point to? So, Again, if, you're, if you were to ask the Romans, Romans, why is Paul on trial? They might say, well, he's on trial because he's created the disturbances. If you ask the Jews, hey, why is Paul on trial? And they'd say, because he was trying to desecrate the temple. And then you ask Paul, Paul, why are you on trial? And here's his answer. Verse 4, chapter, Acts 26, verse 4. He says, the, my manner of life from my youth was spent among my nation in Jerusalem. It was known to all the Jews. They know that I lived as a Pharisee. Paul saying, I was consistent. I was public. I, was a, I, was a, uh, I checked all the boxes of being a good Jewish person. I did everything I was supposed to do. In verse 6, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promises of God to our fathers. Paul has been in jail for two plus years. And now, as he stands on trial in front of Festus and Agrippa and all these people, he says, I'm on trial because of the hope I have in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's what I believe. I believe all of us, someday, we're going to stand at trial. We're going to stand on trial, and we're going to have to give a defense for our Every one of us are going to have to stand in front and give a defense for the hope that we have. And I don't think this is an if. I think this is going to happen. And the question is, will there be enough evidence to prove that you are a person of hope in Jesus? Will there be enough evidence in your life? Now, this hope is going to be our key for today. We're going to come back to it in our application but what I want to do is, is as we look at this text, Paul is going to tell his faith story. 
And this is his third time telling it. And so rather than telling the same story three times, we're going to look at it from a little different perspective. Whereas Paul shares his spiritual journey, we want to view it in light of his statement on, I'm in trial because of my hope. And what he's going to do is he's going to give us some evidence that if we're a people of hope, these are some things that should be evident in our life, right? Four things, four evidences for people of hope. He starts, verse 9, Paul says this. Paul says, I was convinced to do many things opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem, not only locking up the saints in prison with authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them in the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And listen to this enraging fury against them. I persecuted them. Paul is saying the first evidence that you're a person of hope is you've experienced a transformation. Paul, his defense to his hope is, I'm a changed man. That is who I was. I used to be a blasphemer. I used to be an angry person. I used to be a persecutor. And then guess what? I encountered Jesus. And when I encountered Jesus, guess what? He changed me. He made me different. And this is what happens for us when, when the grace and the mercy and the love of God gets deep within our soul. When we experience God for who he is, man, we can't help but be changed by that. We can't help but become a new person. Now, sometimes that happens instantaneously, but most of the time, it's a process. Over time, we continue to be changed by the mercy, the, the mercy and the grace of God. And see, this is, this is the good news. Like, this is the good news because of Jesus. Like, our history does not determine our destiny. Like, how cool is that? To know, like, for Paul, his history did not determine his destiny. Why? Because Jesus changed it. Jesus changed him. It was true for Paul, and it's true for us. Amen. That's good preaching. <laughs> like Paul, that's what God does. He takes us from the depths. He takes us from the pits. He takes us from our brokenness, and he redeems us. He transforms us. That this is our story. This is who I was. This is the type of person I was. I bet I met Jesus, and he's changed me, and this is who I am now. This is what Paul is saying. That as a person of hope, we experience a transformation where God changes us. We call this gospel transformation. This gospel transformation, when we are convinced of what Jesus did on the cross and that he rose from the grave, when we convince and we get that deep down into our soul, we can't help but be changed. We can't help but be transformed. So what is, what is that story of gospel transformation in your life? How have you seen God make a difference in your life? Paul is going to continue in his story in verse 12. He said, listen, as I journeyed to Damascus, I saw a light in heaven that was brighter than the sun. Verse 14, when we had fallen on the ground, we heard a voice saying in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard to kick against the goads? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. See, a people of hope, not only do they experience a transformation, 
But number two, they encounter the risen Savior. They experience the risen Jesus. Paul, do you understand literally he met the living Jesus on that road to Damascus? See, what happens in church world is we start settling for information. We settle for for knowledge. Where if we just believe certain things and we agree to certain statements and if we just believe in the dogma of the church, man, isn't that all we need? But here's the thing. When I read scripture, never do I see Jesus invite us to come and find a bunch of information about him. Like, I just can't find, hey, come and learn all this cool stuff about me. That's all you got to do. No, in fact, there's some uh, uh, religious leaders. And Jesus said to them this. He said this. He said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but they testify about me. What Jesus is saying, it's not about knowing information about him. It's about actually knowing him, walking with him, having a relationship with him. This is the significance of Paul saying, listen, I met the resurrected Savior. And that's the thing, that that Jesus is alive today. Jesus literally rose from the grave. In fact, we're going to celebrate Easter in a couple weeks. And you know what we're going to celebrate? The fact that Jesus was dead, and now he is alive today. It's going to be an awesome celebration. This is going to be one of our favorite Easter's we've ever had. Look forward to it. It's like five weeks, I think. I don't know. It's a few weeks away. Listen. That's not just history. It's not just history that Jesus died and rose from the grave. No, he is alive today. And we have the opportunity, not just to know information about him, but we have the opportunity to actually know him, to have a relationship with him, to walk with him, to follow him, to to have this personal relationship. Paul is saying, "This this is my defense. I met the living Jesus. What is your, what is your story? of meeting Jesus. Do you, do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Paul's going to continue. Verse 16. The voice said, Rise and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant and a witness to the things you have seen. And I'm going to deliver you, verse 17, from your people and the Gentiles whom I am sending you to open their eyes so, they may, so that they may turn darkness to light, that they may receive the forgiveness of their sins. Again, Paul's on trial and says, here's the evidence of my hope. Here's the evidence that I'm a person of hope. Number one, I've experienced a transformation. Number two, I have a relationship with God and Jesus. And number three, God has given my life a purpose. There's a purpose for his life. Because here's what happens. When, we're, when we become people of hope, like we can't keep it in. We can't hold on to that hope. We can't help but say, man, I need you to hear about this hope. I need you to hear about this God who transforms and who redeems and, 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 and who you can actually have a relationship with. It changes everything. It's a message you can't help but share. I mean, this is, this is how life works, right? You find something good, and you're like, man, I can't wait to share, a bit, share about it. You find that restaurant. You're like, man, this restaurant's amazing. You guys got to come check it out. You find that movie, Happy Gilmore. Man, it's the best movie. You got to come watch it. You find whatever it is. You can't wait to share it with everybody else. Listen, when, have you, when you've experienced the hope of God through Jesus, 
Like when you experience that deep down into your soul, when you're knowing him and abiding in him and his word, the natural direction of your life will be you can't contain it within yourself. You can't help but share it with others because of the transformation you've experienced, because of the the grace you've experienced, because of the the redemption and the healing. You can't help but say, man, you've got to have some of this. You can't help but share it with others. In fact, Paul, I love this. Paul has been in prison for, for two years. He's been mistreated. He's been abused. He's had all these things happen to him. And guess what happens? The moment he stands in front of King Agrippa, what does he do? I'm going to tell you about Jesus. I'm going to tell you about this message of hope and redemption. Just as passionately as it would have been the first. It's been been two years in prison. And here he is still proclaiming the gospel. In fact, fact, at the end of the chapter, Paul is going to say, listen, Agrippa. And listen, all of you listening, everyone, you should turn, become a follower of Jesus. Because when we are people of hope, No, our life has a purpose. We can't help but point people to the gospel of Jesus. He continues, verse 19. Paul says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision, but I declared to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout the whole region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. Verse 21, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. For this very reason, I've been persecuted. Verse 22, to the day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, saying nothing but what the prophet and Moses have said would come to pass, that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and that he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. Like, here's Paul. Listen, for two years, for two years, while in prison, while having these false charges, for two years, that is the hope that has sustained me. I have walked, that is a hope that has walked, but that is, that is a hope that is provided for me. You see, following Jesus is not always easy. It's not without struggle, but God is present. And that's what Paul is saying. That the fourth evidence that we're a people of hope is that hope becomes our preservation. Hope is something that we cling to that helps us to persevere. Because not everything in the Christian life is easy. Like we're not promised easy until we get to heaven. We look forward to that day where there's no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. But while we're waiting for Jesus to return and to take us into eternity, we have the promise that we are not alone. That, that, that hope of God is, is, is with us. In fact, I love the way that Hebrews paints this. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 says, We have this hope that is an anchor for our soul. It is firm and secure. You see this, this picture that maybe as, as the storms come in, as the storms come into life, and maybe, maybe it's going to be like Paul and it's going to be suffering in prison for a couple years. Or maybe the storm is the medical diagnosis you weren't expecting. It's a relational trauma that you're dealing with. It's the financial woes. It's the depression. It's the the, the death of someone you love, whatever it happens to be. Scripture says we have an anchor for our soul. An anchor that is holding 
onto us, that is holding us in place, that says, I'm not going to let you go. I'm with you. I'm with you. You are not alone. I've got you. That is the hope of perseverance. That even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we do not have to fear because God is with us. It is good preaching. It is really good preaching. The Holy Spirit affirms that. Here's Paul before Agrippa and Festus and Bernice. And he's saying, I'm on trial because of my hope in Jesus. And here's the evidence that I'm that person of hope. Is I've experienced that hope has transformed me. The hope has allowed me to meet the resurrected Savior. That hope has given my life a purpose. That hope has helped me to persevere. It sustains me. And now we look at us. Christians, we are to be people of hope. We are to be people of hope. In fact, here's my summary for this passage. Here's our big idea this morning. That our hope in Jesus, it should make a marked difference on how we live our life. Our faith in Jesus, it should have this marked difference. There should be these evidences of hope in our life because guess what? Our hope will demand a verdict. Our hope will demand a verdict. Because I do agree, I do believe that every one of us in here, we will stand on trial someday for our hope in Jesus. And the question is, is there enough evidence to convict us that we are a person of hope? Has the hope of Jesus, has it transformed us? Has the hope of Jesus allowed us to encounter the resurrected Savior? Has the hope of Jesus given our life a purpose and a direction? Has the hope of Jesus sustained us and helped us to persevere through whatever we may face? Is your life evident that you are a person of hope? Or is your life evident that you're a person of the world? Is your life evident that you're a person who loves himself and is consumed with what he wants? Is your life evident that you are a person of fear and guilt and shame. Now that those things aren't sometimes present in our lives as Christians, but is your hope in Jesus evident? Is that hope changing you? Is that hope bringing you to the feet of Jesus to experience this relationship with him? Is that hope transforming how you live today, giving you a purpose? Is that hope giving you the strength to carry on and to stay faithful? Because as people of hope, these are the evidences that we should see in our life. Now, when we talk about hope, (laughs) hope sometimes can be a difficult thing, can't it? Kind of like, rustling a wet dog. It's hard to hold on to. It keeps whiling away and trying to get away from us. I think sometimes the reason why hope is difficult is because we have the wrong perspective about hope, the wrong understanding about hope. We think hope, sometimes we think hope is like a fairy tale, right? Like, oh, I hope someday this might happen. 
You know, like I, I might say like this. I might say this. I might say, man, I hope the Seattle Mariners are going to win the World Series, right? I hope Yakima gets a Chick-fil-A. Amen? Like, I, I, I hope these things. But if I'm going to be honest, like, I'm not really sure they're going to happen. Like, deep down in my soul, there's not a conviction that it's going to happen. I hope. It's like a fairy tale. Right? Or we use hope when things are trending in a positive direction. Things are going good, so, man, I, I hope this is next, right? So, you know, the job's going really good, so I hope they give me a promotion, right? Well, I met that guy, that girl. They're giving me some attention. I hope it turns into a relationship. Well, I'm doing really good on my assignments at school. I hope I'm going to do good on the test. We use hope as in, well, things are going really good, so maybe this is the next thing that's going to happen. Where hope becomes limited to our circumstances, Do you know that the hope for a Christian is different? Look what Paul said in verse 6. He said, I stand here on trial because of my hope, and listen to this, my hope in the promises of, by God to our fathers. Paul's hope isn't this, this fairy tale. It isn't based on circumstances. His hope is based on the promises of God. That God is faithful to his promises. And he's seen God's promises play out. He says in verse 22, here's one of the promises. The prophets and Moses said, this is going to come to pass. What do they say is going to come to pass? Verse 23, Christ must suffer and be first risen from the dead. You see, a Christian hope is not fairy tales. It's not wishful thinking. It's not hoping because circumstances are getting better that we're going to be blessed. No, our hope as Christians is rooted in the promises of God that are absolute perfect and true. Every one of them, every time when he makes a promise, he's good on his promises. That is who God is. See, here's how I would define a Christian hope. Our hope is a confident expectation of something good based on the promises of God. See, our hope is tied to the very promises of God. Because he keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. That means our hope is real. Our hope isn't wishful thinking. It's not a fairy tale. It's not based on our circumstances. Our hope is rooted in God, who is 100% true to his promises. He's 100% faithful. You know, if we're going to be honest, some of us, our lives are not characterized and marked by hope. And it might just be because we are not familiar with the promises of God. We haven't prioritized God and his word. We don't know his promises. So our hope is more like a fairy tale. Our hope is more limited to our circumstances. We don't have a hope that can transform us, and give us purpose, help us persevere. So I want to ask you just for a minute, just to close your eyes and just, just soak in these promises of God. Just think about these promises that God has given to us, and he is 100% good in keeping. He promises, listen to this, he promises that his sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of your sins. Did you 
hear that? He promises that his sacrifice is sufficient to cover every one of them, every sin. He promises that when we stand before him, we stand holy and spotless and blameless. That's the promise of God. He promises to supply all of our needs according to his glorious riches. Who needs to hear that today? He promises that when we are weary and heavy laden, he promises to give us rest. Amen to that. He promises, listen, listen, I'm preparing a place for you. A place where there's no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, no more difficulty. These are the promises of God. He promises, said, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Yeah, our hope is because God keeps every one of those promises. He is faithful to that. Our hope isn't wishful thinking. Our hope isn't because of our circumstances. Our hope is in the God who keeps every one of his promises. Listen, I know some in here right now, some of us are going through some stuff right now. We're going through the hard stuff, the difficult times. I know you sit in church and you're like, man, it stings. It hurts because I'm suffering. And I want you to hear this promise. That God says he loves you. That God says he's working things out. He's working these things out for your good and for his glory. He promises he's never left you. You are not alone. He's promised to be with you even to the end of the age. He's promised that neither height nor depth nor principalities nor things present or things to come, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Yeah, this is why we study the scriptures, to hear the promises of God. Because he is faithful to every one of all those things. Our promises, our, our, our hope is not this generic wishful thinking. Our hope is rooted in truth and faithfulness. In fact, one of my favorite promises from scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, all of God's promises are yes and amen in him. Our promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Do you realize not, not a single promise of God is outside the work of Jesus? It's all tied together because of Jesus. Our hope, our confidence is grounded in the person and work of Jesus, of what he accomplished on the cross, the one who died and rose from the grave. He is sufficient he is enough. He is good. He is present. He holds these promises together. I mean, God, I, I, that's what Paul says. Paul says, listen, I proclaim to you what, what the prophets and Moses said, that Jesus is going to die and be the first to rise from the grave. These promises are rooted. If God can do that, certainly God can meet all of our needs according to his riches. Certainly, he can be present in whatever situation we're in. Certainly, he can give us rest when we're weary. 
My invitation this morning, it's not a generic hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not asking you to hope because circumstances are getting better. No, my invitation for us this morning is that we would be a people of hope. That we be a people that allow hope to take root deep in our souls, deep in our hearts, deep in our lives. That we would allow that hope to, to overtake us. We'd allow that hope to transform us and to change us. We'd allow that hope to lead us to the foot of the resurrected Savior, to come into a relationship with Him. No, my invitation is that we'd be a people of hope that would have a life of purpose of proclaiming his goodness, of living it out so others can experience the same redemption and healing that we've had. The invitation is that we would experience that hope that would give us the strength to persevere and press on when things are difficult. The invitation is that we would display the evidence of our hope to those around us. So people like Festus would look at us and say, why do those people live differently? Why do those people have this hope that changes them? They're crazy. Why do these people have this hope that leads them to this Jesus again and again and again? They're crazy. Why do these people have this hope that gives them a purpose and a message? They're crazy. Why do these people have this hope that causes them to, to persevere and to stay faithful. Because guess what? Pretty soon, no longer is it we're crazy. Pretty soon it's, I want some of that. I want some of the hope that you have. That's my prayer for us. That we'd be a people of hope, characterized. Their lives would have evidence that we are people of hope. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?